The Fox News Decision Desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania and Nevada, putting him over the 270 electoral votes he needs to become the 46th president of the United States. Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, who stated in this process, I will never give up fighting for you and our nation, will be denied a second term. That has not happened since 1992 and President George H.W. Bush. Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today we will be celebrating Donald Trump being a loser by looking at the two <laughs> most recent elected sitting presidents to lose an election. That was Jimmy Carter in 1980 and George H. Bush in 1992. Now we could have included Gerald Ford in 1976 but we decided against it since Ford only really counts as half a president because he wasn't actually elected to that position. Uh, and in instead, he just moved up to the, the job when first Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned in 73, and then President Nixon resigned in 74. So they normally say that uh, the advantage is with the sitting president, and yet these three men, Carter, Bush, and Trump, all lost with that advantage. In this episode, we'll be looking at these three men, their presidencies, their challengers, and the elections they lost. Um, before we get into the actual elections, I'd like to just start by asking uh, what each of you think about the term one-term president and what springs to mind when you hear that phrase. Toby, do you want to go first? I think when I think about one-term presidents, I, I really think about a, a real disaster, like something, <laughs> something insane normally has happened. Because if you look at it, you look at the 20th century and you look at the presidents that died, um, McKinley, Harding, JFK, and it's three. And there's almost as many one-term presidents. So you, you really need something pretty crazy to happen. And I think the, the blueprint for this is the 1932 election between Roosevelt and Hoover. Hoover had really slumped because of the Great Depression and the financial crisis that engulfed America at the time. And the misery index of inflation and unemployment were at incredibly high levels. And it took that level of discontent for Hoover to be out and for, for FDR to come in. And what came in actually wasn't just a presidency like Hoover. It was a, it was a revolution. It was the, the New Deal. It was legislative changes that completely transformed American life and created a new consensus. And then you look at it again with the presence that we have uh, with uh, Reagan and with Clinton. Again, in, in the 1970s, you have this convulsion of uh, unemployment and inflation, the stagflation that, that the Keynesianism wasn't even able to fix. And the misery index is, again, really, really high. And it's that frustration that leads to Carter losing the presidency and Reagan coming in. And then again, in 1992, well, and, you know, the economic issues aren't as bad. Unemployment is, you know, lower than 10 percent. But you still have, you know, a failure of the, the president to really engage with economic issues, to engage with uh, Medicare and housing and, and jobs. And there's a huge um, white collar unemployment level. 
especially after the, the savings and loans crisis. And then you have Bill Clinton coming in. And again, it's this revolution. It's like, it's like the, so the FDR revolution, the Reagan revolution, and then this new revolution of this third way Democrat, which is focus on the economy. So, yeah, I mean, when I think of one term presidents, I think of major failures of some sort of political consensus or some individual and then a new revolution coming in into American politics. What's I think what's pretty interesting about Trump is that it doesn't really fit into the same tradition. You know, the, the Biden's coming in and he's not he doesn't really represent a revolution. There was a major economic crisis, no doubt, but it well, was... you, you say he doesn't represent. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this later, but I guess there's the possibility that Biden bumps his head and becomes the radical left candidate that we all want and mm-hmm. become the mm-hmm. second coming of FDR and suddenly the mm-hmm. Green New Deal and all this kind of stuff. I do get the point, though, that it's maybe not the um, on the fringe on the kind of opening of it. It's maybe not the you know, it's not Reagan, Reagan coming in and changing how America believes. Um, Vaughn, have you got any kind of opening thoughts on the on this idea of a one-term president? Um, no, I do. I'd agree with everything Toby just said. Pretty much that something has to go wrong. I think for you to be a one-term president, I don't think it's so much that. Well, I don't know. There are two possibilities there, right? The incumbent either has something go dramatically wrong or there's just an incredible challenger. And it's it's one or the other. It's, it's either a condemnation of the president you already had, or it's this like gamble that the challenger will be so much better. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's really been that latter one so much. I think it's more a condemnation of the president that is sitting more often than not. Um, and it gets really interesting, like we'll talk about this, but in George H.W. Bush's case, at one point during his presidency, he had an 89% approval rating. <laughs> so what happened that he lost to a governor of Arkansas who wasn't even really like one of the high prominent de- uh, Democrats of of the early 90s? Um, what happens to like kind of bring that about? It's... I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened, Von. America mm. saw him play the saxophone, and that's why he. <laughs> I mean, worked for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I would just agree with Toby. Something, something has to go wrong for it for a one-term president. It's not necessarily about anything else going right. Yep something has to be detrimentally wrong yeah Um, and i feel like even if um there is an amazing challenger like you know reagan or um, like like (laughs) like even like someone if you go as far back as like woodrow wilson and theodore roosevelt they were kind of amazing challenges to to taft and you didn't really necessarily have a big economic crisis you had a different view of the way america should be run it run but i think part of that comes from a, a failure of the of the individual you know like um the, the the individual is so inadequate then you get an amazing challenger that rises up. yeah yeah you have to have something to point to and be like i'm gonna be better than that 
Okay, well, I think that's a nice way to start it. So we, we've covered the term inadequate, so let's move on to the Jimmy Carter test. It's <laughs> uh, about losers, isn't it? <laughs> so, I'm, I'm going to spring something on you guys in a few minutes, but go ahead. Okay, that is hopefully not code for physical violence. Uh, we, <laughs> uh, so let, let's let's turn towards the 1980 election. And before we, we kind of do that, Toby, can you just maybe set up a little bit of how we got into having a, a Carter presidency to begin with? How did we have a, a peanut farmer become the president in 76 and the kind of political landscape that allowed Jimmy Carter to become the, the president in 76? I mean, he, he wasn't just a peanut farmer. Carter had been a governor, you know. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure he wasn't just plucked from the streets? It's like George Bush, because George Bush was like, you know, I'm not of Washington. I was, I'm, I'm a gov. I'm from Texas. What? <laughs> like, like he's just some hick from Texas. Like he's not the governor who's the son of a former president. It's like, it's the framing is always so silly. But yeah, like he, <laughs> Carter came in as um, actually as a bit of a, a, a sense of a revival for America after the water gate crisis which um gerald Ford was implicated in because he had pardoned richard nixon carter came in as someone who hadn't been involved in washington was known for being uh, very religious very upstanding even people like hunter s thompson you know who, who were who were very attached to um uh previous left candidates in the past really they really appreciated carter's simple perspective and Carter came in and he wasn't even necessarily a liberal democrat he was a centrist with some new ideas he he brought in Paul Volcker who was a conservative and um, to run the fed he tackled inflation like he he really engaged with the crisis that america had and he talked to americans um like they were adults for you know it was one of the first times it really, really happened you know he, when the country was going through a crisis. He went on TV and, and he said that, you know, this the country is going to um, a crisis of confidence. We, we are in a national malaise. And so he was a, a simple and trustworthy guy who was a little bit of a religious revival for, for the country at the time. And I think that he came in at a time with, you know, stagflation, uh, high inflation, slow economic growth. And he was also responding to the energy crisis, the OPEC oil crisis um, that it happened earlier in the decade, but it meant that oil um, stayed at a very, very high price level. And so, but then I think the thing about Carter is that he also brings in his own humanitarian foreign policy, which was, it was quite different from the Cold War um, foreign policy of the period, which which had emphasized containment. Carter was really about liberating other nations from an obligation to the United States, trying to make sure that they had autonomy and independence. And he didn't even fire, you know, symbolically fire a shot throughout his uh, his, his presidency. So he was very, he was a very different. Um, candidate for, for many people and a very, very different president. But I think that kind of person really, really got under the skin of um, conservatives, neoconservatives who wanted a more aggressive foreign policy, fiscal conservatives who, although appreciate the institution of uh, people like Paul Volcker, wanted much more, you know, 
conservative uh, cuts in the in the tax tax rate, property taxes, and uh, income taxes, and did not feel that America was going through a malaise, and and felt that you know that the, the nation needed some sort of um, heroic figure instead, and that and that's that's when uh, that's how you really get Ronald Reagan, I think. So what about the Carter presidency? Uh, Vaughn, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about some of the defining moments of, uh, of his, his term between 76 and 80? Um, yes, I can, Simon. And this is what I'm going to spring on you guys, is that I think Carter's my favorite president. The, I think he's fantastic. The ring um, of all the presidents? Of, all of them? Of all the presidents, I think I agree with Carter's um, Carter's policies more than anyone else's. And further, I was talking about this with my brother last night. Um, I think Carter was 50 years before his prime. I think if Carter was president today, mm-hmm. if, if Carter ran today at a reasonable age, um, I think he could have won. So do you, do you mean... And I think sense? he's the president we need right now. I think... I think he the the seventies were not ready for Carter. That's probably a fair estimation. I mean, the fact that he put up solar panels on the White House and then Ronald Reagan immediately tore them down in nineteen eighty, I think, is probably, exactly it's so probably a good summation of of where America was. Yeah, how ready they were for someone like Carter. I guess, in a sense, Carter came in because he filled a sort of moral obligation for America rather than a, a political one at the time. I yeah, mean, he did let his son smoke weed on the top of the White House as well. So. Which so is just cool. Cool points. Absolutely. Okay, so so we'll I'll run through a couple things um, about Carter. So he's a Democrat. He was looking for reduced deficit, reduced government spending. Um, he, uh, as Toby said, he came in during the stagflation, um, high inflation rate with a slow growth uh, in the economy, and that pretty much stayed the same through most of his presidency. Um, he was concerned with environmental issues, um, energy conversa- con- conservation, um, like you guys both said, bring solar panels in and dealing with this, this oil crisis. He was really blamed for a lot of the gas lines coming back in like the 19, uh, in 1979, just before the election season. And that really damaged his uh, kind of re-election campaign. He emphasized the human rights um, at home and abroad, which was, as Toby said, a just marked difference in Cold War affairs. Most other Cold War presidents were very like gun-toting Americans, um, trying to strong arm the Soviet Union. And Carter had a pretty hands-off approach on that um, until absolutely necessary. When the Soviet Union invaded um, Afghanistan, he did begin to build up the military again as a kind of show of force um, and played the diplomatic games by pulling the US out of the Moscow Olympics. Also in his presidency were um, massive kind of increases in public ideology around the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which would later fail under Reagan, and then 
movements for teachers unions and he doubled public lands for national parks and it was it was much more of a kind of like grassroots america um and so Leslie nope. yeah ex exactly <laughs> which is a good harder is the leslie nope of presidents <laughs> um he also moved he advocated for decriminalizing weed which is yeah that's just cool cool, <laughs> cool. good for him why hunter thompson liked them i guess yeah. <laughs> and of course um, it has a, a massive potential uh, impact on like people who actually get arrested for this stuff which is like 90 exactly like yes. black people which is just you know Anyway, that's a whole racism thing, which we can put to one side. Sorry. Yeah, about we've, we've done that a lot and we will continue doing it because that is a fight we're fighting. Um, but back to Carter. He also advocated for national health care. Like, guys, come on. We could have had this. Um, but that was stamped down and Ted Kennedy was against it. And then he challenged him later. We'll get into more of that. I'd like to but... say that Nick supported uh, national insurance health care as well. I just, I just, I just want to <laughs> <laughs> Toby's very defensive now with this idea of Carter being a better president. <laughs> um, and then two very, or well, rather three very defining moments. There were the strategic arms limitation talks with the Soviet Union that Carter really tried to, um, uh, he really tried for dearmament and de-escalating the, the Soviet Union and the nuclear arms race. Um, which following on Reagan from his policy I'm, I'm just <laughs> okay okay <laughs> i'm aware um we also have the camp camp david accords which brought a peace treaty to um the middle east between israel and egypt which is just incredible that that carter brought at least a short era of peace to the middle east when that's such a talking point um, I'm using massive air quotes right now. Nobody can see that. But I mean, similar to what Trump's doing with all his uh, peace things are going through right now. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Carter walked so Jared could run. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> an image. And then finally, the Iran hostage crisis, which was yes. a genuine hot mess and yeah. a massive reason for why Carter was a one-term president, in my opinion. Um, also, all of these things, because the U.S. wasn't ready for all of these things, this would, this was like a massive progressive candidate on all of the things that matter now, but he was just like old man yelling at cloud back then. <laughs> um, so it just really didn't hit with the electorate. But the biggest reason, in my opinion, would be the Iran hostage crisis, because the Camp David Accords, he had massive approval for that. He, he brought peace and people around the world people involved with the, the Accords said that without Carter, there would be no peace. There would be no treaty. And Carter said it was one of his proudest moments of his presidency and um, political career to bring about the, the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Um, so for everything to go so wrong after that, I think it was largely the Iran hostage crisis, which was, uh, um, an assault on the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Mm -hmm. 66 Americans were uh, taken captive. And the there was an Operation Eagle Claw, I believe, 
um, in 79 that failed miserably to, re to uh, rescue the hostages. Um, and then Iran released the captives. It felt so miserably that uh, members of the team were killed um, yeah. during the, the, the hmm. mission. I think a helicopter exploded. Carter always said that if they had one more helicopter, then maybe they could have um, they could have done it. But yeah, it it, it really it really uh, hurt his presidency. Yeah. I think it hurt the just the national identity and the kind of what America stood for and how it was kind of seen in the world and how America kind of saw itself. And we we had a little bit of that with the when we did the episode in the eighty four election, mm. and we kind of talked about this idea of Reagan kind of coming in and kind of automatically getting the boost because I think. Was it not January of 1980 or something that the whole thing got resolved? But that was obviously it was 30 minutes after the inauguration of Reagan. <laughs> Literally 30 minutes. That's how efficient Reagan was. <laughs> and there, there are there have been rumors um, that the Reagan administration or the Reagan campaign team tried to scupper. The, uh, wait. Oh, Toby, you still there? Oh. I think Operation Eagle Claw might have got Toby. Uh, all right, we, we appear to have lost Toby. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. Oh, here, so, yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, there always have been rumors that the Reagan administration tried to scupper the bringing back of the Iran hostages. And um, Carter actually met with a world leader several years afterwards. And he, he told Carter that the Reagan, the Reagan campaign team actually approached him about delaying the bringing back of the hostages. Jeez. Now, the Reagan um, campaign team did not successfully um, achieve their goal in that, in that area, but they were really scared during the election because they felt that the October surprise, which is, you know, this really mm -hmm. was going mm -hmm. to be kind of bringing back the, the hostages and maybe he was going to get a major bump from that. So, but yeah, again, Carter was very, very unlucky in that. Yeah, there's also no uh, evidence against the idea that maybe a former Republican president with uh, strong ties to um, uh, working on foreign policy maybe had something to do with resolving the crisis. I'm not going to say Richard Nixon completely solved the Iranian hostage crisis by himself, but, you know, crazier things have happened. Uh, <laughs> uh, shall we just very quickly touch upon what happened in the Republican primary um Toby, I think you probably know who won the primary. Was there was there anything of any importance to come out of it other than the coronation of Ronald Reagan for the nineteen eighty? Well, I think after seventy six, Ronald Reagan, I mean he he really wanted to carry on his campaign to try to be president again. He felt that because he was so close to taking out Ford, that he should just you know carry on. He he actually um, became a radio host. Yeah, which he, we covered. In, yeah, to learn about, you know, a number of different policy issues, healthcare, uh, social security. And, and he became even more of a politician, really, because although he had like a strict ideology, limited government, what he tried to do is he did not say things like, you know, we're going to get rid of social security or, um, you know, reduce taxes and make a flat tax. Or like that. He was very, very measured in the way he approached that. And he gained a, a big following even some as uh, many people have called it some reagan democrats and mm. so he gets into the primary and, and people almost feel like it's going to be a coronation but in steps uh 
H.W. Bush, who at this time really represented the moderate wing of the Republican Party. His father, Prescott Bush, had been actually not, he wasn't even a moderate um, Republican. He was a liberal Republican. And Bush came from that tradition. And so when they campaigned against each other, Bush ran on this idea that Reagan had voodoo economics and that mm-hmm. his tax cuts um, mixed with, you know, um, with, with the budget issues that um, Reagan was putting forward were going to be really bad for the country. And Bush did win some early primaries. And then there was a debate that was set up between them. And then the, the debate organizers said that someone had to pay for the debate and Reagan ended up paying for the debate. But once he found out that he could pay for the debate, he knew that he could actually organize the debate in a particular way. So the debate was supposed to be between the two main candidates, but Reagan brought in some other candidates who were not polling very well and the two main candidates were allowed to sit down. And, but, George, but Reagan allowed the other candidates to sit behind Bush and Reagan for some reason. And, then, and, they, were, and they ended up cheering Reagan on. And, the, and, then the, and then Bush got really, really agitated. And eventually uh, Reagan said that, you know, like, they should be allowed to be involved in this debate. I'm paying for this mic, so you know I, I get to decide who's involved in this. And the crowd was like, "Yes, yes, you, you should do that." And then what happened was that eventually they had um, the debate between Reagan and Bush, and Bush Bush lost the debate as well. And then Reagan also won the the press around the debate and the 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 you know the issues that the, the debate had as well. And so the Basically, at that point, Bush had lost the primary. And Reagan didn't really like him that much. He wanted, actually, to have Gerald Ford as his vice presidential running mate. But the difficulty with that is that the, on TV, Ford said that he didn't feel that he was going to be like other vice presidents, that, um, that he had, you know, he obviously had experience as the executive. And, mm-hmm. and Reagan saw that as... Ford saying that actually they were going to share the executive, which scared right. Ray because he had worked very hard to become president. He, was going to, he wasn't going to give <laughs> it away. And so despite Nancy Reagan really actually reviling the, the Bushes, they decided to bring the, the Bushes on. And that became the, the ticket for 1980. So you're saying if it's kind of Gerald Ford's uh, fault then that we ended up with two Bush presidents? Is that kind of Possibly, I mean, it's a it's a real thing to think about. Like the Ford and Ford was more conservative than than Bush, especially on the economy. I mean, the of Bush, I mean, you know, a, a Reagan Ford ticket was a, was a very very real possibility. Um, but then I don't know. Ford would play a mo- much more substantial role in American life than he does, and that would make me uncomfortable. So. <laughs> <laughs> you think it happened? Do you think Joe Ford was just saying all this stuff so he wouldn't have to go through an election? Because obviously, yeah, I feel like it's you know. it's hard to believe right now, but like back then, Ford was like a kingmaker because like <laughs> he he won like twenty six states. He won like the most states at the time for anyone who had lost. It was a tight race, mm-hmm. so he was considered to be you know the father of the party that at that point in time. There's an image. Um, 
so we're we're kind of set then. We've got Ronald Reagan on the right, and we have Jimmy Carter uh, on the left. Well, nominally. Um, so sh- how was the the nineteen eighty election framed, Toby? How, you know, what were the candidates kind of running on, and what were the, the sort of policies and, and messages for, from each candidate that, that that was kind of coming out? I think it was it was always really difficult for Carter. I mean, to running on his record is, is really tough. I mean, the misery index was as high as it had been since the the 1930s. I mean, he was trying to run on detente, but then you had the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which made it difficult for him to really run on his uh, foreign policy achievements. Um, Carter had been able to sideline uh, Ted Kennedy, who ran a much more liberal campaign in the, in the primaries. So there was some approval of Carter's approach, at least to the economy, not necessarily the outcomes. And I think what Carter wanted to do is he, he, he hoped that he would be able to get into a debate with Reagan where he could show that he was more sort of uh, aware and of the issues and understood the real important points at, at that point in time. But I, th- and I think once um, they have the debate, Carter, um, he, Carter has pretty good debates. I mean, the thing about Ronald Reagan is that um, if he was seen to have not been completely demolished in the debate, he would get pressed for that because he wasn't considered to be that intelligent. And um, Carter was talking about an issue and then Reagan said during the debate, um, it, and I think it was about Reagan's ob- um, objection to uh, health insurance. And uh, and then Reagan said, there you go again. And actually, it, Reagan's there you go again point didn't make any sense. There wasn't like any <laughs> uh, logic to it, but the crowd really ate it up. And um, he was seen as winning the debate because of that, despite not really winning on the points during the debate. Um, so more on the all. style off the, the he, Yeah, he won on the style. Uh, yeah, and, and I think it was, it was really, really difficult. There was also um, John Anderson, who had run oh. um, as a third-party candidate. Anderson, as Carter said, actually had a, quite conservative records in this in the congress and then but he ended up running as a liberal as just as just a liberal he 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 got many liberal republicans voters i mean and many people have seen that he did take votes from 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 carter the, the people who had voted for ted kennedy during the primary some of them went to anderson but it, it also shows that 38% of the Anderson voters were people who would who would have voted for Ronald Reagan. So even if Anderson hadn't run, it, it's very likely that Carter would still have, have lost the, the election. Uh, Vaughn, do you have anything to add on the election it, itself, your kind of viewpoints on how it went? And then also maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the kind of final results of the election and... Uh... <laughs> Quite a uh, quite a handy handy for victory for Reagan in the end there. Mm. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, so on the debates real quick, just because I like the hot, juicy gossip of history. Um, the, the debates were actually like an absolute mess to organize because Carter didn't want John Anderson to be at the debates. Mm-hmm. Um, and Reagan did because Carter didn't. And they were arguing back and forth over this for months so long that Carter didn't show up to the first debate and the League of Women Voters who were organizing the debate, who also organized Carter's 76 debates, um, they were, they had agreed to the Reagan um, campaign that they would leave an empty chair where Carter was supposed to be. And Carter was livid about this because he didn't want it acknowledged that he wasn't at the debate. Um, so at the last minute, he convinced them to not have the chair. But then the whole debate was just John Anderson and Reagan talking about how Carter wasn't there. Um, there that empty chair just wasn't for Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but that that's like hilarious to me. I love that. And then in the final debate, it was like two weeks before Election Day and the Reagan administration or the Reagan campaign really wanted to debate to debate against Carter. So they finally gave in to oust Anderson and not let him in. And Carter tried the whole time to paint Reagan as a radical war hawk. Um, And he, this, this is something that really stuck out to me about Carter that I really appreciate and I think would have served better today. He said in the debate that he asked his 12-year-old daughter what the most important issue of the debate or of the election is. And she said, control of nuclear arms. And he was derided for this. There were political cartoons saying like, Carter gets his, um, his administrative advice from his daughter and just making it a complete farce which is kind of ridiculous that he's asking, that, like he's asking the next generation what's important to them. And that's such a focus of today's politics of asking Gen Z, what do we do for you? What do you need for the next generation? And I, I don't know, I think, I think the kind of existential fear that children had about the nuclear arms race isn't something to be derided. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a measure of Carter as a person. But ultimately, he lost the election. Um, and at the end of the debates, Carter, in his closing, or sorry, Reagan, in his closing remarks, said, I'm going to read this long quote. He said, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Is America as respected throughout the world as it was? Do you feel that our security is as safe, that we're as strong as we were four years ago? And if you answer all of those questions, yes, why then I think your choice is very obvious as to whom to vote for. If you don't agree, if you don't think that this course that we've been on for the last four years is what you would like to see us follow for the next four, then I I could suggest another choice that you have. And I think, that was a censure for a lot of the audience 
um, and really frames this, this kind of wider idea of why we have one-term presidents in looking backwards and saying, these last four years were not what we were promised and it is not what we wanted. Um, and that's why one-term presidents are a condemnation of the president that you've already had. Um, so ultimately Reagan wins um, in his first of two landslides. Um, he won 489 electoral votes to Carter's 49 and Carter only won Minnesota, Georgia, which are the home states of Carter and Mondale, um, and then Rhode Island, DC, West Virginia, which is surprising, Maryland, and Hawaii. So yeah, not great. That's the fallout of that, the smallest of the states and your home states. Um, yeah, it was it was a comprehensive victory for Reagan. Yeah. Uh, one of two, as you said. Um, I guess we will touch on this later, and it's something we touched upon when we were talking about the 2020 election in previous episodes, this idea of is the is the election is the second election for a president, i.e. the one that where they're actually the sitting president, is it almost a referendum on their first term, as it were? And um, that's probably something we'll, we'll touch on a bit later, but I think you mm-hmm. could definitely frame that as how has Jimmy Carter made America look and feel and how did it make its people look and feel and is that the direction you want to keep going? And as you said, Reagan was able to frame it that way and uh, basically won all the votes. So um, yeah. I, I, I feel like um, Jimmy Carter was a pragmatist. He he did what he needed to do when it came to the economy. He tried to have a substantial change in, in, in foreign policy. But both of those things, I think they, they were at least deemed to fail. I think mm-hmm. the, the Volcker recession in 1980 Actually, you know, many of the policies that Carter put forward through the Fed were successful in the early 1980s and, and were part of the, you know, the Reagan sort of comeback in the 1983. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, some of it is just an accident of, of, of history, really. He, he was dealt, I think, Carter, a really, really bad hand with the yeah. the economy it's 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 different from Hoover because Hoover's you know start up in the in the roaring tw- um the roaring 20s but yeah it's a, it's a, I feel like it's a really difficult presidency for anyone to have, 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 have run. about an hour ago I called Governor Reagan in California and I told him that I congratulated him for a fine victory I look forward to working closely with him during the next few weeks we'll have a very fine transition period i told him i wanted the best one in history and i then sent him this telegram and i'll read it to you it's now apparent that the american people have chosen you that as the next president i congratulate you and pledge to you our fullest support and cooperation in bringing about an orderly transition of government in the weeks ahead my best wishes are with you and your family as you undertake the responsibilities that lie before you and i signed it jimmy carter Well, luckily, it's not like uh, we have a new uh, liberal president coming into a, uh, a tough situation now, I'm sure. Uh, no, that'd be awful. Yeah, that would be awful. Uh, all right. Is there... Uh, but Reagan did start in a recession, though. <laughs> well, they, there you go. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. 
And so, so is it uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, many people, many people, Toby, are saying that uh, Joe Biden is the new FDR. <laughs> that's that's let's just leave it on that. Um, <laughs> any final words on the Reagan presidency? On the sorry, the Reagan presidency? Well, I guess we could talk. I about got that. a lot of words about that. You do have a lot of words on the Reagan presidency, <laughs> on the Carter presidency, and the loss. Or shall we move now on to? Uh, Onto our, our our next uh, gentrified loser of today. Um, now nah, go to Bush. Let's go to Bush. Okay. So fast forwarding twelve years, we are now at the ninety two election. Ronald Reagan has uh, served out his eight terms. Uh, eight terms. Sorry, <laughs> Jesus. <Christ. laughs> it was uh, like eight, eight, terms, wasn't it? eight years. Well, I mean, that would be something if a president if. Not just I mean, to be honest, if Reagan, Reagan has had eight terms, hasn't he? Come on, let's. He kind of has. Yeah. I think that's a new thesis, there, Simon. It is. <laughs> I think that was the very age much of Reagan. A, you know, the age of Reagan that very much was a subconscious uh, slip on my part. But I mean, considering Reagan pretty much reshaped America to his whim, it kind of has been eight, eight, uh, eight uh, terms of Reagan. Anyway, he he technically only had he only technically had eight years. Um, then then we were uh, presented with the idea of George H. Bush to become president and uh, America lapped that up and uh, he wins the 88 uh, election after serving those eight years as uh, Reagan's vice president. So we're now heading into 92 and we have uh, George H. Bush on one side but um, I guess one thing to kind of talk about is the fact that the 88 election which is uh, what brought Bush into power was kind of capping off a, basically a 20-year run for the republicans um mm-hmm. obviously they, they lost 76 but you know you could take into account the fact that was kind of post watergate and you know as, as we kind of mentioned earlier ford was kind of tainted by association to some degree with that um and 76 was still tight you know it's not yes so i mean you, you really are looking at a 20-year span there as kind of you know starting off with our our um our boy um, Nixon uh, and continuing on, uh, Toby. What what were the key things to, to look at with Bush's first term, and what state was America and American politics in leading up to the ninety two election? Well, I think if you look at Bush's nineteen eighty eight uh, election campaign, it was very dirty. It was led by Lee Atwater, who had been one of the great um, progenitors of uh, the Southern strategy. And it was very dirty. They, they had they, they had the things like the Willie Horton ad, which really hurt Dukakis, and Lee Atwater actually apologized to Dukakis about. But then Bush comes in, and Lee Atwater had made Bush, you know, kind of political, you know, kind of dirty again and getting into the to the real muck of politics. But Bush comes in, and then he becomes a sort of fatherly figure within the presidency. He'd come from a you know a, a liberal-ish tradition, as his father Prescott Bush had been a liberal Republican, and he manages the end of the the Cold War basically. You know, he's he had a good relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev coming out of the Reagan administration. He approached Reagan from quite an aggressive uh, anti-communist policy to much more diplomatic. Uh, policy much more in line with, with Nixon's real politic and Gorbachev and Bush talked to each other during the collapse of the Soviet Union 
they helped uh, negotiate the end of the the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany and um Bush was you know very diplomatic towards the the Soviet Union when it was uh, collapsing against the 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 hardliners like Cheney and even Nixon he did not heavily support the Yeltsin administration or Yeltsin's um, coup attempt against the, the 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 Soviet regime when the Soviet Union was was falling apart and at, by the end you know as a as Gorbachev knows that the Soviet Union is going to fall apart. He calls George Bush and they have a really nice conversation. And then Bush is filmed just as after this has happened in the White House. And, and reporters are asking him why he's not upset or why he's not, I mean, not upset, but why he's not happy or jubilant or furious. And he's, he says, you know, I'm not, I'm just a relaxed kind of guy. I don't, you know, I don't show that kind of emotion. And I think he'd gotten that from his uh, mother who had instilled, you know, a sense of um, a propriety in, 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 in him. And so he, he becomes this sort of fatherly figure within the White House, known for um, real political and foreign policy, known for, you know, helping, helping to manage the fall of the, the Soviet Union and incredibly winning the the Gulf uh, War conflict with um, Saddam Hussein um, very, very quickly and managing the media relations around that by not get, not allowing reporters to, to go into the area and actually report on the actual story of the conflict. And he gains an approval rating of 87%, which is higher than Reagan's approval rating throughout his eight years. So one would think that heading into the 1992 election in the beginning of 92 uh, it was going to be a, a coronation but I think under the surface Americans especially baby boomers were no longer they were no longer interested in the, the Cold War conflicts they they no longer you know if, if you go back to 96 uh, no, no 1960 the, the election was all about the Cold War the economy was a sideline and people like Richard Nixon had always considered being in politics about managing foreign relations as opposed to handling an economy, which Nixon described as building like a building outhouses and, you know, in, in different odd places and stuff. And I, I think with Bush, Bush came through that tradition as well. He was much more of a foreign policy mind. He didn't really care too much about the economy. And he had this big uh, policy plank during 1988 that he was you know not going to increase people's taxes he said read my lips no new taxes he said it everywhere he said it at the convention said it on the campaign stump and but, <laughs> but by uh, 1989 he's saying that well i'm not going to increase taxes in the first year and dukakis is like increase taxes in the first year he ran on not increasing taxes at all <laughs> and eventually he, he meets the um the democratic uh, congress and they decide on a responsible tax increase in order to solve much of the budgetary issues that they inherited from the reagan administration so bush was kind of a adult in government who knew that sometimes for the greater good you had to um, change policy. He he was not that attached to the the conservatism of the um, 
Reagan administration, he was conservative, but not in that way. He was almost like a Tory in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think, but what that, what that um, tax agreement did is it radicalized conservatives against George Bush. I mean, um, uh, Newt Gingrich had been involved in the negotiations and Gingrich was, although he had misgivings, was going along with it. But then once the, the bill was put forward, Gingrich broke from the president, which was a real um, sort of big moment in, the, in his presidency and really set the scene for the coming of Pat Buchanan to challenge uh, George Bush in the primaries. And I think that becomes the, the, the context for the 1992 election. His, his failure on the, on the, with the tax uh, rises leads to a conservative revolt and also generates the opportunity for Ross Perot to come in the election. Mm-hmm. And then his, his failure, I think, on the economy more broadly allows the Democrats to frame the election as they are concerned, not just about foreign relations, but by, about an economy that the president doesn't seem to be engaged in that the one of the most graphic um symbols of this is when george bush goes to a a department store and he looks at the checkout and there's a new machine the new checkout machine and it's able to read several receipts at at a um at a really quick pace and bush is really interested in this but the reporters frame it as the bush has never been to you know these (laughs) kinds of stores before you know he's a He's obviously like a touch, yeah. He's out of touch, and uh, and that yeah, that's really the 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 context for for the election is a, a president who's really engaged in foreign policy, but really out of touch with the economic struggles of of uh, of an aging boomer generation. That was very nicely summarised, Toby. Um, yeah. Vaughn, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the challenge from the right? Then it wasn't exactly like. Uh, as Toby mentioned, George Bush just got the uh, the okay from the Republican Party, and um, he went up for the ninety two election without any challenge. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? So Pat, Pat Buchanan was the White House communications director. Um, he was like a journalist, and people weren't really. I mean, I'm surprised by that, at least. Um, but maybe we shouldn't be looking forward to these talks about Tucker Carlson. <laughs> but Theodore Roosevelt was um, a general. <laughs> yeah, but Theodore Roosevelt was also a police commissioner like, for. Yeah, yeah, like... police commissioner. <laughs> very, very. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Yeah, uh, yeah. I always think about the Tucker Carlson thing. Like, he'll have to go to like Iraq or something for like four years and then come back and then be able to run. I would actually be okay with just hang out there. I'd be okay with him die, so we'll we'll be okay. (laughs) I'd I'd be okay with him going running for president if he has to stay in Iraq for four years beforehand. That's a deal I'm willing to make. He can run for president, but he's still not allowed to win. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) These are the conditions. Um, Yeah, so Buchanan challenged him, and um, it wasn't like an all-out split among the base. Um, ultimately in the primaries, Bush won 73% of the votes, uh, which was just over 9 million, and Buchanan won nearly 3 million. Mm-hmm. So 
it's it's not a massive kind of um showing for Buchanan but it is kind of impressive especially like as I said earlier he had an 80 89 percent approval rating at one point during his presidency um and in some other elections with an incumbent you don't even get a challenger the party just says like yeah we're gonna run the same guy mm-hmm. a la 2020 um so it's really surprising for Bush specifically to have like kind of this prominent challenger but then there was also um David Duke who is the like grand wizard or whatever uh, of the the Ku Klux Klan grand Um, racist fuck yeah thank you for saying that um yeah whatever racist Dungeons and Dragons shit that is but um he won 119,000 votes which is nowhere near the three million that Buchanan got um he did really well in his home state but then he was left off the ballot in many other states. Yeah. Yeah, rightfully so. Um, it's really interesting, though, because this is kind of... I mean, looking backwards from 2020, we can see a kind of growing trajectory, right? Yep. Um, and the fact that David Duke was even allowed to run in the Republican for the Republican uh, nomination in 92 is pretty foreboding for recent elections that we've had now. You know, I think you can put Buchanan and Duke in almost in the same bowl. You know, I mean, mean, Buchanan might come on this podcast, so you you wouldn't want like to, you know, (laughs) describe that way. But he ran as a paleo conservative, you know, He's mm. running against um, against obviously new social rights for people on things like abortion, um, but he ran against immigration. He was um, he had he had um, very very conservative views, and it was and and he hated the sort of liberal internationalism of um, of Truman down to someone like H W. Bush and Buchanan is someone who said that he didn't think that the U.S. should enter the World War II. Like he said, he said that before mm. because he didn't feel that you know the the world that was created after um, 1945 has really been you know conservative enough. And I, yeah, it's, it, it's so it was almost like the the right there was a rightward reaction to to a president that was very internationalist. Um, he was obviously bringing things like NAFTA, um, people, um, union workers and working class workers were very unhappy with issues like that. But then I think it allowed for a sort of nationalist element um, that comes out in both Buchanan and in, in David Duke. That's interesting. Of course, you know, before yeah. that, you've got George Wallace as well. So I, I guess there is a, a, a pattern of, of sorts as far as having further right candidates come along. Sorry, Van, was there anything else you'd like to add to the uh, to the challenge on the right then? Um, challenge on the right? No, not really. Okay. Good there. Good. Okay. So let's very quickly look at the little sexy new Democrats that are uh, emerging, <laughs> play, playing saxophones and, you know, having affairs with women. Um 
I don't know which of you guys would like to take this uh, upon yourselves to introduce our uh, our next president and so how... I'll, I'll introduce these uh, new Democrats and mm. apparently this guy Bob Kerry was supposed to be sexy and they <laughs> so glamorous and it's always because they are former Marines or something like Bob Kerry was and he mm. was married to he was married to an actress, so that I think that was considered to be glamorous and stuff. But it's that's weird. I don't I don't really understand. But, I mean, it worked um, for Reagan. Yeah, but then I guess with the New Democrats, um, many of these candidates, people like Bob Kerry, Bill Clinton, uh, Paul Songus, they were they were pro business. They were pro tech. They were concerned with uh, opportunity instead of um, equality of outcomes, equality of opportunity. Um, you had also the go- governor of California, Jerry Brown, was was involved in this. And they, all these guys were George W. Bush's age. They were like 30 years younger than H.W. Bush or, you know, and I think um, they were boomers. Uh, many of them were the Vietnam generation as opposed to H.W. Bush's World War Two generation. And uh, at the beginning of the campaign, you have uh, Bill Clinton, who's obviously the the governor of Arkansas, who's kind of a conservative Democrat. He was the leader of the Democratic uh, Leadership Council, which was a a group of conservative Democrats who wanted to push the Democrats towards the right. And Clinton is the the strong favorite, uh, with Paul Songus being the, the, the second. But what happens to Clinton at the beginning of the primaries is that the, the Jennifer Flowers issue comes out mm-hmm. in the newspaper, The Star, which says that she had had a 12-year affair with Clinton. And uh, Hillary and, and Bill go on 60 Minutes, and then they talk about their relationship, and they say that it's not necessarily the the um the issue of the american public to be looking into the private goings on of a of a marriage and and to be honest for some reason the american people kind of buy that mm-hmm. and um although clinton was hemorrhaging votes because of the flowers story he managed to finish second in new hampshire to songus and um, from then on, his campaign starts to rise and he starts to look like the um, presumptive nominee of the, of the Democratic Party. And it must be noted that after the Flowers Affair, Bill Clinton never did anything inappropriate with women. So that was one <laughs> well, he had other issues. And, and, and H.W. Bush was very surprised that America was looking to potentially elect someone like this. You know, he, he had been a draft dodger, for example, and mm-hmm. people like Bush, you know, coming from the generation that they, they, they felt, they felt that that was a really, I mean, it was almost a sin, um, but the Americans didn't really react to that. He, um, Clinton came on television to explain his, his um, very technical deferment that he had. Um, and uh, he managed to successfully do that. And I think, there he because he had the flowers issue because he was a draft dodger hw bush was kind of arrogant he felt that the america probably wasn't going to elect someone with such moral failings but i guess he was wrong (laughs) (laughs) yes he was (laughs) oh it is almost like 
I was gonna say it's almost like introducing like a softball version of of Trump. We'll never elect someone with those moral feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be completely yeah. aghast about all of that. Absolutely. Um. So that is the the left and the right. They have they have picked their men, um, as it were. It's important to note the ninety two election is is different because we got a genuine third party candidate out of it, as we kind of touched on a little bit earlier. Um. I don't know which one you would like to introduce, Ross Pro. I'm sure Toby, you've had dreams about doing such a thing. Do you want to pick up on that one, or Vaughn, would you prefer to uh, to be the the woman in Ross Pro's life? Um, I'm good. On that <laughs> um, I think with Pro, he was he's like a many characters in American life. Like he was a a guy who had made millions for himself through this. Um, computer company that he had and that was actually connected to technology from Steve Jobs after Jobs left his first firm. And uh, Perot was also a guy within the, the Texas community who had always had ambitions of making himself into an American you know, business star. And he was well known to George H.W. Bush even before Bush became president. And Perot had successfully got people who worked for his company, I think it was uh, EDS, out of Iran during the Iran hostage crisis. During the Reagan administration, there was talks of um, POWs still being in Vietnam because some people thought that the Vietnamese were, were, did not allow everyone to leave and were keeping Americans there just to torture them or something. And um, Ross Perot wanted to set up a team in order to successfully get these POWs out. And then Reagan told Bush, because Reagan, Reagan had a difficulty. He never wanted to disappoint anyone. He told Bush to tell Perot that um, they were not going to allow him to control any kind of um, mission to do that. And because of that, Perot was really, really angry at George Bush. And um, he's, he's just sat there stewing and eventually he, he, he used that in part as a reason why he was going to run against uh, George Bush. Um, sorry, my mind keeps wandering back to this idea of Ronald Reagan serving eight terms. Um, I'm just kind of th- thrown by my own uh, perplexities there. Yes, so that is Ross, <laughs> that, that is Ross Perot. Um, how... How can we kind of frame this for the audience and how did the actual election go? Because I believe Perot's actual anticipation or sorry, his participation in the election was a little bit kind of up and down as far as when he was actually involved. And I believe he had some issues not running. He sort of ran and then he sort of didn't run and then he sort of picked it up again in September of, of 92. Um, I don't know which one which one of you guys wants to kind of... I, I think that Perot used a new... Um channel cnn to really get a lot of his message out um it was the sort of start of the 24-hour news cycle cnn really used that in order to get a boost on the established channels but then i think perot's campaign was able to actually lead bush and clinton and you know obviously um hw bush was very perplexed by this he thought perot was a kook he secretly felt that the American public 
once they got to see Perot, who he thought had mental problems, they would no longer be interested in Perot, but Perot kept on with some strength, which, which then started to die away as Clinton picked up. And then for some reason, Perot drops out, which means that Clinton is now leading in a two-horse race against H.W. Bush. This is one of my favorite things that I've ever researched, I think, because Ross Perot, like, like, you know, the kind of like Texas oil baron trope in a lot of like cartoons and media and stuff. That's Perot in the like in 1992, but off of the back of a tech company. And it's hilarious. Like just watching him speak is brilliant because he he feels like everything he's saying is absolute gold um and yeah he was like in and out of the the campaign season once um once clinton got the nomination or was seeming to get the nomination um he dropped out inexplicably for like three weeks and then came back and it's like what who is this guy (laughs) and the weirdest thing is he was leading he was leading in in the (laughs) the uh, polls all of spring until he dropped out and then came back. He, and he for got, someone, sorry, go ahead. No, he got basically the same amount of percentage vote as Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. And Roosevelt <laughs> had been a two-term president. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And for someone like Bush, as we're saying here, like Bush was this kind of like traditionalist. He had 89% of the uh, um, approval rating during his presidency he was doing really well with foreign affairs and everything really not so great on domestic but like good positioning to be president to win this election again and then you have bill clinton on one hand with all of these like sexual escapades and (laughs) this like new democrat like the new democrat whole platform really is like we're gonna be republicans but blue and (laughs) he just comes out of nowhere jazzing up this whole base of previously like reagan democrats was that intentional with the jazzing and him playing saxophone on our senior <laughs> it was not but i like your thinking um but he just he brings this whole base together and george bush is like what the hell was that and then ross perot comes out like guns blazing <laughs> just an absolute maniac and for someone like george bush running this kind of traditional kind of campaign he was probably like what the hell is going on? And that's why he lost. <laughs> and I love that. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Make it sound like my dad trying to understand like rap music coming along. Like what? <laughs> why are we <laughs> not? No, it's noise. Don't we care about the children? And it's like, <laughs> no, we don't. This isn't don't big band this music. Is absolutely it though. That's Vaughn is absolutely right. This is <laughs> this is this should be the podcast. This is exactly what happened. <laughs> Because Bush, during one of the debates, like he's so exasperated, he just looks at his watch. Oh my god, I like, love the debate. What is going on? What is going on? <laughs> and and Perot was a guy, you know, once Perot's leading in the polls, Perot is a guy who um the, the reporters they weren't actually zeroing in on him and asking him questions, tough questions, because he he had just been like a theater piece, or a bit like Trump, really. But once um, Perot's leading the polls, they start asking him questions on, on the stump. And he's just like, 
um, when you, they ask him about Medicare, ask him about aid, and he's just, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> and I'm just, I don't know about it. He's not prepped. He has like some of the um, campaign managers from previous Democratic and Republican campaigns, people like Ed Rollins. And um, they give him a, uh, a platform to run on and they try to brief him. But um, Perot tells them that the candidate he had, Ronald Reagan, was a robot. Like, I'm not like that. You know, I just, I just I'm authentic. I just say what I feel. And if I don't know something, I don't know it. And this guy was running against H.W. Bush, who had had, you know, he was ambassador to the U.N. He had had so many different positions in government. <laughs> And he was being him. And then Clinton, who was a, he was obviously had been a good um, governor in Arkansas. He was doing interesting things with uh, education. And it, obviously Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, but Clinton had real negatives, real, that would sink anybody. But he was managing to get past that. And then you had Ross Perot as well. It's insane. I love it. I love it so much. Watching the debates too, like you said, on C-SPAN, you can watch all of the debates. And I would recommend it as like pleasure viewing. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like George H.W. Bush, first of all, I read that quote from Reagan earlier about like focusing on the four years before and really condemning them. And George H.W. Bush in his um, kind of opening statements of the first debate, He's like, I'd hate to to be running for president and think that the only way I could win is to convince everyone how horrible uh, things are everywhere. And he's like, don't look at my failings. That's not what this is about. We're looking at the future. Hilarious. Fantastic that Reagan's vice president is now running a campaign of do not look at the last four years. We're going to look forward. And then you have Perot, who is responding to Bush and Clinton saying, this guy has zero experience. And Perot's opening statement, his very first words of the presidential de uh, debates are, well, they've got a point. I don't have experience in running up $4 trillion in debt. And that gets him a laugh. And you can see this immense glee on his face from people laughing at his joke. And he just goes off on that like trying to make people laugh through the whole presidential debate while Bush is like this is the policy that I'm pushing and Clinton's like who really cares about character though like <laughs> amazing it's so good and Clinton's like you're Joseph McCarthy because you're questioning my patriotism and Bush is like no I'm questioning that during the Vietnam War you went and organized protests in uh, in foreign countries and Clinton's like, no, that's that's what uh, McCarthy did. He condemned people for their patriotism. <laughs> and your dad, Prescott Bush, he condemned McCarthy. So your dad would condemn you. And it's incredible. That's the first five minutes of the first presidential debate. Please watch it. Get this some is how crazy this is. Amazing. In the vice presidential debate, you got Quail and you got gore and they're debating and then you have this guy who was the vice presidential running mate of Ross Perot he's this, this old guy with very white hair he's he's kind of overweight and he's in the middle of these two and they're exchanging barbs and then he, he he's struggling struggling to get a word in edgeways and then he just says well you can see why there's problems and then they just start clapping <laughs> 
and SNL just goes off on it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I almost feel like we should create a sister podcast just for the 92 election. I think clearly there's enough material. Amazing. I, I think Vaughn's sheer happiness at having a chance to research this and dive into the world of Ross Perot. Um, I almost don't want to, but shall we move on to the actual <laughs> uh, results of the election as much as I'd like to just <laughs> hear, hear Vaughn just incredulous at the idea of the 92 election. Vaughn, how did the actual election play out? And was Ross Perot the winner? Um, no, he wasn't. And I would like to contest that. Because <laughs> I, I, think, I think he's just lovely. He's winner in our hearts. Yes. Could you imagine? How about that for an alternate history? Let's do a sister podcast on if the, the losers of elections won. Um, the Ross Perot deck. Talk about eight, eight if any president deserved eight, eight terms. <laughs> Definitely Ross Perot. Um, <laughs> No, this guy's a great little caricature of of everything. It's fantastic. Um, yes, yeah, no, he lost. The results. Yeah, he totally lost. Um, he got zero electoral votes. Oh. Um, which is disappointing. <laughs> and uh, it was not a landslide for Clinton, but Clinton did win and ushered in this new Democrat era, which is just more blue... Uh, Red guys. Um, <laughs> pretty much. I think so Bob Dole called it, called it something like um, the Democratic Convention at Madison Square Garden was almost like a, a mechanic shop where they got a bunch of like old liberals and then dressed mm. them up and made them into these shiny new centrists. And yeah. I think, yeah, I think a lot of people like uh, Bob Dole felt that it, it really worked. But if you you look at the scale of this defeat, because Clinton didn't win in a landslide. Obviously, he never got 50 percent in either of his elections because of Ross Perot, actually. But mm-hmm. but <laughs> Perot had 19.7 million votes. He won 19 percent of the vote. Clinton had 43 percent of the vote. Bush lost. Uh, there's. 60% of the electorate voted against Bush. So it was clearly people wanted something different. You know, the, he must have been so confused. <laughs> 1992 is, is weird because it was a time where people were, you know, less engaged in the two-party system. They felt that the parties were failing them, obviously because of the, the economy at that point in time. Mm. And they really were looking for an alternative. It's the, it's strange the alternatives that they picked, but they were looking for an alternative. And it, and if you look at it from the amount of people who didn't vote for Bush, it was a clear rejection of the the president. So so yeah. can we definitively say that Ross Perot was the reason Bush lost, or are we simply looking at as Toby says an unpopular president who couldn't? you know, couldn't muster more than, what, 37% of, of the electorate, you know, are, if this was a straight shootout between Bush and Clinton, would we have seen a different result? Or would well, we... I think every time that, during the time that Perot was out of the race, um, Clinton was leading mm-hmm. Bush, but I think um, analysts have looked at it and it does seem like Republicans did vote for Perot. Um, Republicans had more of a reason to be um, antagonistic towards the person who was at the top of the ticket be- because of the 
the tax increase because of the breakaway yeah. of Gingrich, because of Buchanan, because Bush wasn't really a Reagan conservative, and um, white-collar voters who had been the traditional Republican Party and was still, you know, the ma far majority Republican Party in 1992, had experienced in 1991 a real um, high unemployment. And which was um, particularly unique, but it was, was also, you know, would have been the base of moderate uh, Republican support for someone like H.W. Uh, Bush. So I think it, Perot can be seen as in part of the reason why Bush uh, certainly lost the, lost the election. I mean, we don't know what would have happened um, if they had run uh, two person election but i suspect it would have been a lot closer than it was it is quite staggering to look at those numbers and to and see nearly 20 million people voted for ross perot why weren't more people voting for ross perot uh, no um von do you have any anything to say on the the, the idea of uh off the 92 election and how the results were um i wish ross perot had more than nineteen thousand or 19 million votes um, we all do. He deserves them. Just for being a Hanna Barbera character. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I think um, having a third party candidate really does impact an election because with two party, it's like, well, I don't like that guy, so I'm not going to vote for him, and then you end up voting for the other one. But with a third party, it it makes you think about your candidate a little bit more, I think. Yep. Um, and I and think you, have, like, you have to choose one. So if we're talking about um, these one term presidents, um, just off of what Vaughan has said, is a, there's a clear sense that if there is a third strong 30 party candidate, like George Wallace or Perot or even, even John Adamson, it shows that the incumbent has real problems. Yeah. Real, definitely. real problems. Yep. So, um, is there any any additional takeaways you'd like to add to the ninety two election, or would you like to move on to um, kind of the next part of the podcast, which is kind of looking how um, Carter and Bush compare to Trump? Well, George Bush didn't want the Jennifer Flowers thing to be a big issue. He didn't want to really engage with it. He thought it was beneath him. But then I guess. He was trying to make sure that the the issue of um, his own um, mistress or potential mistress didn't come up. There was this idea that someone from the diplomatic service had um, set up trysts between him and his mistress in Switzerland or something like that. And Bush wanted to keep that down. And Hillary Clinton who is just the gangster, basically, was saying that, why aren't they talking about George Bush's mistress? <laughs> Barbara um, Bush was not very happy about that at all. Vaughn, anything to add on the, the, on, <laughs> on the summary of the 92? Um, <laughs> not really. I, I love that they tried to make it about character and... That like the American people were like, nah, that's okay. We don't really give a shit. <laughs> like, it, like in, in this know. election, they had um, they had 
you had the the Tom Hanks character in in H.W. Bush. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, like he was in the CIA. He did a lot of awful things during his his years in government. He was just the establishment figure. But he was, you know, he was a war hero. He was seen as competent, smart, um, reasonably. You know, he 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 said things like, "I'll never say anything bad about America, even when she's wrong." So he was just, he was the guy, you know, he was the guy that, that, that Americans are supposed to, supposed to like, you know, a guy with, with some apparent dignity, but he just couldn't win on that because no one cared. No one cared. And that's my favorite thing. Just like, if I'm ever having a bad day in the future, because I did not know much about this before this the researching for this episode. If I'm ever having a bad day in future, I'm going to think about just how confused George H.W. <laughs> Bush had to have been on that debate stage and on election night when you had this like left field, not left wing, but left field um, saxophone player who just kind of smooth talked his way into the election. And then Ross Perot, <laughs> it's just it makes me really happy. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. That's my whole summary of the 92 election. I find it hilarious. And um, uh, Clinton did some things that Bush wouldn't do. Obviously, like he was reacting to the flowers thing. He was acting Mm -hmm. to the draft dodging thing. And then what he thought to do uh, through his communications team is let's go on like TV um, late night shows, which was kind of the first time that that presidential candidates were really doing that and he decided to go on Arsenio Hall and he's on he's also on MTV not only talking about political questions but talking about like you know his personal life and George Bush is at home watching all of this thinking why is he doing that <laughs> we don't do this Just that's not so what confused. this is about that's like like if if Carter walked so Jared could run then Clinton went on Arsenio so AOC could go on Twitch wow hot take Hot take right there. That's that's why historians make the big money, people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think the summary we can take away from the 92 election is it made Vaughn and Toby both happy and confused. So loved it. The way we see it, the country should see it, that the people have spoken, and we respect the majesty of the democratic system. I just called uh, Governor Clinton over in Little Rock and offered my congratulations. He did run a strong campaign. I wish him well in the White House. And uh, I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power. There is important work to be done and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. Okay, so that's 80 and 92. Um, shall we just have a little quick couple minutes on the 2020 election, uh, which, as you guys might know, Donald Trump lost. He lost to Joe Biden. Like 86 times. It's, 86 times. it's been Christmas yeah. since the first week in November. 
Yes, outside of all the uh, various lawsuits that uh, Donald Trump has lost, um, he he won 232 electoral votes, but Biden won 306, and 306 is a bigger number than 232. And so, quote, landslide to quote yes. Donald Trump. Tr- Donald Trump 2016, that was, uh, mm-hmm. that was a landslide. Trump did have the largest uh, number of votes uh, ever for uh, a sitting president uh, with over 74 million. But that was still seventy. That was still seven shy, uh, seven million shy of Joe Biden, who won with eighty-one million. Um, before we move on to the actual um, kind of crux of the matter, and we talk a little bit more about things in general, I would just like to specifically ask, just very quickly for both both you guys, how you feel about the twenty twenty election, considering it only happened a few weeks ago, but it feels like it was about six months ago. We're still waiting for Trump to actually leave the white house von do you want to go first just can you believe we're only a month away from president trump actually leaving office um i really i can't it hasn't hit me yet um genuinely i was thinking about this the other day that as many times as biden has been declared the victor it still doesn't feel real um because trump is just always there even when he's not there the media is like where is he and it's just (laughs) He's always there. Um, and I got a news alert like 10 minutes before we, we started recording this that said U.S. presidential election 2020 and then another update on how his Trump supporters have started scuffles in cities because they're trying to turn overturn the election still. And I was just like, it was, it was over a month ago. Why am I still getting breaking alerts about the U.S. presidential election? But I guess tomorrow, tomorrow is when the electors officially meet on the 14th um, to certify the election um, from the Electoral College. So I guess we're, we're still in for that. But maybe that's when it'll feel more real. Maybe on Inauguration Day, it'll feel more real but it doesn't yet. I suppose the fact that we just know Trump's going to be an ever-present, ever-president, even after he's left the White House, he's still going to be tweeting about it. He's still going to be claiming all these things about... Unless unless he gets arrested. Unless he gets arrested. You can't tweet in handcuffs. I guess it's um, it's super different from Carter and... And yeah. Bush, because Carter goes off and becomes like a saint, because you know, doing all this building houses, work, and, building yeah. houses. And those houses that he's building at whatever, like a hundred and two, they're yes. they're not <laughs> going to be able to be houses. Someone's going to have to come in and then remake the things that he's building. You mean like it's, just, the, it's, it's very you know, very performative. You mean like the but... Katrina <laughs> ones where like they built them and then like three months later they all fell down to so the action. Yeah. But no, Carter's worked really hard for peace in the Middle East. He's done a lot of great work with the Carter Center. And and then you have H.W. Bush, who, as he says, you know, he went and got into the grandchildren business because he was a very, very old old man. They just sort of disappeared. It's a good point you make, Toby, about making the comparison about how they leave office as well, because... Obviously, you've got the, the two presidents we've just talked about, and you know they obviously are disappointed to lose, but they at least on camera are, are talking about 
sort of preserving this great democracy and this transition of power being this important thing. And mm. you've got that famous letter that Bush wrote to Clinton, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like, you know, we're all supporting you and no one wants you to succeed more than I do and all this kind of stuff. And it, it's just, you know, a greater contrast with Trump there could not be. Um, it's obviously kind of hard to compare Donald Trump to anyone. Um, but it is interesting that when you look at the 2020 election, Donald Trump was able to kind of unite his base in a way that was far greater than anything Carter and Bush were able to do. Yeah. Um, do you guys see any similarities between Carter, Bush and Trump and their losing campaigns? And do you see any similarities in their first terms as presidents? Or is it is it kind of hard to take this on a hard not to take on an individual basis? Is, is there something we can kind of pull together on this? I feel like it's a really individual case. I think in the fullness of time, we'll really be able to see this. But if you look at the economy, mm-hmm. it's 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 different from Hoover because Hoover had a bad economy since 1929. And it's different with Carter because Carter also inherited a bad economy. Um, COVID was, it was like an event, you know, almost mm-hmm. like this almost like white whale of an event that really changed um, the situation completely. Um, a lot of people who voted for Trump positively said that they were better off than they were four years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and the, you don't have a third party breaking away like you do in 1980 and like you do in 1992 that they gained any, any strength at all. It's, it's, it's funny to really think about it because Jimmy Carter, you know, he had difficulties, although he was campaigning for the ERA. People like Bella Erzog weren't supporting him in the primaries and kind of turned away from him in the, in the general because they just didn't think Reagan could win, you know? And you have this big split in the Democrats with Ted Kennedy, you know, running against him. And you, you just don't have anything like that in 2020, despite the fact that I, I think that the the issues um, between the candidates or potential candidates within the Republican Party would be more fractious. Obviously, like Ted Kennedy and Carter disagreed on fiscal policy and disagreed on his support for the labor unions and things like that. But the Republicans kind of disagree on like fundamental issues around like character. And they've and there's things like the Lincoln Project was a breakaway movements by republicans um you know I, I i can almost imagine like a lot of journalists that um work in the republican um spheres who aren't politicians themselves have, have turned against the republican again they created this never trump movement but trump has been able to bring his caucus together like it's almost like he's a m- magical like political whip almost you know like the way the way he just brings all these people together he softens any issues they have with each other and they 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 work for him and they knock on doors for him and they elect senators and congressmen for him it is really strange and it's clear that polarization has a lot to do with with this and polarization wasn't as intense even in the 1980s and clearly in 1992 mm-hmm. as it is now. And I think it's that, it's that polarization that means that Trump, who 
um, I guess the thing about it is Trump, he wasn't really failing on the economy um, because his economy was good. I, you know, like one tempers the amount of influence one thinks that a president has in an economy, especially when an economy is not in a crisis. Mm-hmm. But you did, didn't have decent job approval ratings before the COVID crisis. So it's very different from those elections and it's and in some ways actually it's worse for trump because i think that if you look at it from right now did he really have any reason to really lose the election other than the fact that elites didn't like him you know i don't know because it doesn't seem to match the tests the the tests of the economy the tests of a new ideology although we don't know about joe biden and you know things like a Green New Deal, the tests of a third-party candidate, the tests of job approval ratings, it doesn't seem to meet any of those tests. And that, yeah, and I think it's strange what's happened almost. I guess it's hard to understand the economy fully because, you, as you say, Toby, he was able to continue the trend that Obama had kind of started after the Bush years as far as the economy turning up and Trump's economy was just kind of taking along and doing fine and then it obviously it obviously fell off a cliff because of covid and i guess we don't fully understand right now uh without you know data and without maybe kind of a chance to look back on a historical side how much the the electorate was informed on uh trump based on how he was able to handle covid in general and specifically around you know parts of the economy of it and you know not wanting to shut things down and just the, the general spread of it actually causing such a huge issue in america and of course around this time we also had the the huge racial incidents of of 2020 which i think were very difficult for i think certain people in the center right um to stomach as far as you know him holding a Bible upside down while walking out of a church mm. while they were tear gassing protesters and all this kind of stuff. It's always hard to know with Trump's people who there are Trump supporters who are hardcore Trump supporters who, you know, believe Q, you know, QAnon nonsense and who believe Trump is some sort of like actual worship figure. So you put them to the side and then you, you put the sort of general left and far left people to the side who wouldn't vote for him. And then kind of everyone else, you go, well, how how much do individual things like this matter? I mean, if you thought Trump was a bad person in 2016, after all the, you know, the vulgar stuff came out and the, you know, the rape allegations and the, the various other things that he's done and just his language towards people. And you've you've got you've got a clear history and a clear profile of who the man was, you know, him doing things to protesters or you know, saying mean things about John McCain or whatever, that probably doesn't change how you see that person. So I, I guess, uh, as we've talked about in the podcast before, it's hard to know what individual things turned away voters. And also, how much is it just the cumulative effect of having someone like Trump as president who's so constantly in the news and so constantly mm-hmm. kind of just there in this presence and America feels like it's sort of shuddering because it's got someone who is so divisive. Vaughn, I, I don't know what your kind of thoughts are on, you know, looking at 2020 and then the the 
how you how you feel in comparison with how the 2020 election has gone in comparison to the the 18 92 elections which you've been looking at um i don't think i have anything nearly as profound as what you two just said um to add to this i think 2020 is was much much more a referendum on trump Mm -hmm. um than i think necessarily carter or bush's campaigns were um you mean as they were a person to, or on the actual uh presidency itself um on the person mm -hmm. yes bush tried to make it a character campaign um and say like i fought in the war and clinton's a draft dodger and um tried to challenge his patriotism didn't really want to challenge his affairs because he wasn't innocent in that front anyway but that came out anyway and like that election was much more about the character um kind of pivot because bush didn't have the economy to kind of point to and be like look we're doing well he only had foreign affairs and people weren't interested in foreign affairs anymore because the gulf war ended the soviet union was dissolved there were no kind of like existential threats from abroad anymore so it was time to look domestically um and that character aspect of the the election just didn't stick then but now for as you say whatever reason um maybe it's because it, it was so much clearer that the character between the character differences between biden and trump are drastically different um Maybe that's why it was it was such it featured as such a bigger part of this election and why Trump lost. Um, but but as Toby says, I think it is a kind of individual basis why a president is a one-term president. Something major has to go wrong, but that doesn't have to be necessarily the same major thing in each election. Mm -hmm. And for Trump, I think it was a perfect storm of him being an absolute piece of shit, <laughs> and then also like his complete sociopathy with um, handling a pandemic that is raging and killing at this point, as the CDC said and warned, more people per day than 9-11. Yep. Um, and he just doesn't care. It's that that's literally today, yesterday and last week's news is that it's killing more people daily than 9-11. And Trump's like, let's spend another eight million dollars on recounting wisconsin and it's like what yep. what the fuck is wrong with you and that's why he lost because in in my opinion that's why he lost is he's just so 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 detached from the people and 70 what five million voted for him is that right 75 uh million last i've got at the moment is 74.2 so okay 74 74 million people were okay with that but like 81 million were not 81 million people were absolutely sick of the fact of trying to pretend that the republicans do care about normal people um and at least the republicans pretend to care or sorry the democrats pretend to care um biden said what last week like People don't want a president who doesn't understand their problems. They don't want a handout either. They, they want a president to say, listen, I understand. 
And the vast majority of Americans are like, no, we want you to fix the fucking problem. Like, we don't need you to just acknowledge <laughs> that we're hungry. Give us money. Like, what? Give us, Give money. us money. Yeah, seriously, pay people. Why is that something <laughs> that we're campaigning about? But, like, capitalism is about paying people, right? Pay them. Um. Anyway, that's a different debate. But... Yeah, I think I think 2020 was a referendum on Trump as a person more than anything else. But he also did a fairly shit job as president for the average American. And that's what the job's about. So he yep. rightfully was fired. I was going to ask just each of, each of you to give me your kind of favorite takeaways from either of the two presidencies. But after this episode, I'm kind of getting the feeling that just the 1992 election in general seems to be of particular interest to both of you. Um, yeah, I learned something about myself that Jimmy Carter is my favorite president and Ross Perot is my favorite not president. <laughs> when you say favorite not president, do you mean someone who tried to be president and who wasn't or just out of all the billions of people who've ever yeah. lived? Out of all I'm, the- <laughs> I'm sorry, Mitt, but Ross Perot is moving <laughs> in on your territory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Perot's still alive, isn't he? Is he? Well, give me his Twitter handle because I'm about to get cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. Ross Perot died uh, last year, I think. Oh, he died last huh? year. Oh, Way to get my hopes up. All right, Mint, I, I guess. Think, let, well, let me just check because that was just a quick one. Yeah, week. no, he did July 9th, 2019. Oh, oh. terrible. Oh, God. Well, there are going to miss my that hopes. chance then. On the plus side, I think he shares a birth day, not date, obviously, that'd be worrying, with my wife. So yeah. maybe Ooh. we can have a joint celebration of my, both my wife and Ross you, you think that? Or you know? No, I, I, I do know that. I, 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 <laughs> July 27th. Uh, so, uh, but definitely not 1930, unless my wife has been lying to me. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a really interesting third party candidate podcast to be had potentially mm. you know I think there's a- and it's weird that um I don't know I, I always thought that Kanye didn't really have a good <laughs> campaign you know I feel like there's things he could have done like Perot got on the ballot in like 50 states he had a real good field team that got him on the ballot he was doing news he was paying for TV spots um I mean if you're rich enough, you can do it. It's possible, you know, if you're like Bloomberg or something. Mm. But you have to be interesting, like not like Bloomberg, but you have to be <laughs> interesting and you're rich. I mean, it's that's, yeah. that's why Trump's president. If you're interesting and you're, and you're rich, you I... could put one as a third party candidate. But it's more difficult now because of the, the high levels of polarization. I think polarization is, is really part of the story because these one one term presidents are losing basically in landslides or you know the, the ones that we covered and including you know if you go back to 1932 with with hoover he's losing in a landslide and but if you look at trump's approval rating it never goes into the 20s like yeah. jimmy carter's leaving approval rating is like 23 percent. it was nothing like other presidents who have had that like richard nixon out in the midst of Watergate, and he had to resign. Trump never had the approval ratings like that because the polarization is so high right now that you know he's going to be able to 
gain at least uh, the significant amount of support from the Republican Party. I I really wonder, you know, if 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 the Bush presidency had been between oh four and oh eight, then maybe you could have had something similar. But we don't know. Depending on the the levels of polarization, you know, um, Bush might have still only lost to Barack Obama by eight million votes. We don't we don't know. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think um, that's a really good point to bring up, though, and to highlight again, is the billionaire aspect. Because Ross Perot could afford to just walk on the scene, dump a bunch of money, walk out of the scene, come back in. Like, he could afford these bizarre kind of escapades in campaigning for president, largely just because he was angry at George H.W. Bush. And that's what we saw with Bloomberg, and that's what we saw with Trump. Trump, like people make jokes that after the uh, White House Correspondents Dinner, when people were like trashing him in what, like 2012 or something, um, that's when he decided he was gonna run for president just out of spite. And he was rich enough that he could. And Ross Perot was rich enough that he could. And Bloomberg was rich enough that he could just dump $500 million on a campaign that lasted like two weeks. (laughs) Absolutely bizarre. And like, that's probably why Bush was just so blindsided by what was happening in this this election cycle, because I don't I don't know if we've ever really had a Ross Perot character before that, but we've had multiple since. Yeah, and- I think it's really interesting to look at these two because um, Carter didn't really have anything to run on, but Bush did. Yeah, and so it's really interesting to look at the the differences between these two these two campaigns, and what Americans wanted at the time as well. Uh, just a couple of quick things. One, I think it's worth knowing that Ross Perot did run again in '96, but didn't mm-hmm. the same sort of levels of success, success and uh, obviously didn't win. He didn't run again after that, but he did endorse George W. Bush um, in 2000. And most importantly, he endorsed Mitt Romney in 2008 and 2012. So I think, it's, I think it's quite clear to see the political alignment between uh, Vaughn's, yeah. Vaughn's favorite men. I think um, <laughs> W was very happy when Perot dropped out because he was like, oh, you're definitely going to win Texas now. And you know <laughs> that W and Perot just had like an old, like good old boy thing going on with with all the millionaires in texas that hw bush wasn't allowed to be involved in because he's from connecticut or something and both w bush and and perot the pretend to be like from really poor backgrounds and they've never had money and just to be random texans you know it's just yeah yeah I i think my dating profile from now on is going to be I want you to have the character and ex- eccentricity of Ross Perot, uh, the ideals of Jimmy Carter, and the bare minimum nature of Mitt Romney. <laughs> That's all I'm looking for in a man, evidently, from my political opinions. <laughs> and the, the knowledge and experience of Ross Perot, who will quite <laughs> just claim he knows. <laughs> okay, here's a question. Was Ross Perot the first himbo? Um, I mean, I don't know what Perot's romantic life was like. I can imagine it was very interesting, though. You know, he's he's a colorful character who's also a millionaire. I mean, <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, well, we should probably move away from this because we're <laughs> heading we're heading towards the two-hour mark, and I think we're both. I think we're all all three of us now are beginning to uh, suffer the effects of talking about uh, politics for two hours. Uh, mm. Before before we do close up, I would just like to say that uh, it's not long until Christmas, and we do actually mm. gonna, we are actually going to be having a Christmas special uh, this year. Uh, not quite got the date for that fixed yet, but it'll be the three of us talking about Christmassy stuff, and most specifically, it'll be Vaughn um, with her expert knowledge about Christmas and Christmas films. And Vaughn, do you want to maybe just introduce a little bit about what the Christmas special will be? Ooh, yeah. Um, so as we've mentioned before, probably, um, I'm studying my PhD on Christmas films from the early Cold War period um, and saying that they're not actually this kind of like innocent, innocuous genre as we think of Christmas films as. Um, we think of them now as kind of kids films or family films, at least. But the first one that I'm looking at is It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. That is decidedly not a children's film. Mm -hmm. um, it deals with a lot of very minute details and differences between um, small town capitalism and big business capitalism and has a very serious and dark kind of plot about um, the values of living one's life. So that's kind of where my research is going. And we will be talking about that fairly We'll touch on some of the things, um, kind of the sentimental militarism in Christmas films, um, the more patriotic stuff, the more anti-communist stuff from the early uh, Cold War that is evident at Christmas. Um, but then we'll have a nice lighter touch of kind of Christmassy games that we'll play um, in very much not not the normal fashion of, of our kind of episode structures, but We'll be talking about Christmas films since the Cold War and um, what we consider as Christmas films. And just so you know what to expect, it is the party stance of this podcast that Die Hard is a Christmas film. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we will be discussing that further. So um, kind of fun stuff, kind of light stuff and a bit of the historical research that I'm conducting. Absolutely. The other part of my life. It, <laughs> the non non Ross Perot part of her life. Yeah, the boring part. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I think we should probably leave it there. This has been a bit of an uh, epic one today, but it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this episode. Um, so, Vaughn and Toby, thank you so much. That was that was really that was really enjoyable. Um, from from Vaughn and Toby and myself, Simon. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we will be back with that Christmas episode for you in the very near future. So um, take care and goodbye. Goodbye.